Welcome to Halo Drop. I'm your host, Vishal Gurbakshani. I'm joined by Sunil Verma and Krishna Subramanian. We're going to talk about what makes things exciting in India and how we can bring that in cross-border to America. We're really excited to have Shantanu Supre on the podcast today. Shantanu is a partner at Inventus Law and is a US, UK, and India-admitted corporate lawyer with broad experience in cross-border legal matters. Shantanu is experienced in representing venture capital and private equity funds, emerging growth companies, family offices, and entrepreneurs in corporate, M&A, venture capital, and financings across the world. Many of the sectors that he focuses on include technology, mobile, media, internet, financial technologies, and renewable energies. Shantanu is a charter member of the Indus Entrepreneurs, or Thai, and a co-founder of the Mumbai Angels, which is India's leading angel investment group. Shantanu is also a frequent speaker regarding cross-border M&A, venture capital, and entrepreneurship. He's spoken at Harvard, Stanford, Columbia Law School, Wharton, and the India Institute of Technology. And he's been quoted in Forbes, Reuters, International Finance Law Review, Asian Venture Capital Journal, and the Economic Times. Prior to joining Inventus Law, Shantanu practiced law with several international law firms in Silicon Valley, Singapore, and London before running his own cross-border corporate law practice between Silicon Valley and Mumbai. With that, please welcome Shantanu Subra. How did you kind of come into practicing law you know, between India and Silicon Valley, and what was sort of the aha moment for you? Why was that a big opportunity? Actually, India was always just like you know, any vestige of Indian uh, origin. It was always very personal to any of us. Uh, you know, as a kid, you know, growing up, I used to go to India back in the 80s. And, and really, there was really no professional angle. It was just personal visiting your grandparents and whatnot. And, and there really wasn't any opportunity to do anything professional. I think towards the late 90s, there started becoming some angle of doing some professional opportunities in India. And I think that was when I first started getting uh, interested in this. I was always interested in cross-border practice of law. That's why you know I went to Oxford and studied English law and got licensed in India. Um, in fact, when I got licensed in India, I think people were like, why would you want to get licensed in India? There really aren't any opportunities in India. And this was in the early 90s. And then uh, by the time sort of late 90s came, it was that, that dot-com boom in the US. And that was when the first sort of tech scene in some way was coming to India. If, if any of you remember companies like Rediff, that was the, or Make My Trip, that was literally the first wave of, of companies out there that, that started this. And that's when I got interested in and seeing that way, you know, connection between Silicon Valley and India. And that's kind of when I said this was kind of real and had some legs. And of course, it hasn't been straight up. There have been, been ups and downs. And the, you know, the ecosystem has definitely evolved to, to where it is today. I think one of the, you know, one of the big things is just thinking about sort of the history of, of investments in India. You know, I think last year in 2020, there was probably around between two and $5 billion of investment in venture capital investment into, into India's into startups. Uh, whereas, you know, China probably saw something around $40 billion in, you know, foreign venture capital investors kind of coming in. Where do you see sort of the differences, um, you know, and what is the attraction for investing in India for, you know, VCs and, you know, how are you seeing that ecosystem sort of develop? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of answers to that, or, you know, possible answers to that, rather. I mean, one is clearly China is a bigger economy than India. I think we have to admit it. It's probably four or five times India's size in terms of GDP, you know, per capita GDP and actual GDP. China at this point is probably very close to possibly even exceeds the U.S. So it's just a bigger economy. And so therefore, the volumes are bigger. And that's probably why VCs have traditionally been interested in China. 
much more than India in some way. And I think the other the other angle uh, is that, of course, the exits. Uh, you know, China at one point had some four hundred some companies listed on U.S. exchanges. If you count the number of Indian companies listed on U.S. exchanges, it's very small. And many of them are ADRs of large Indian banks, for example, like ICIC or HDFC. So, you know, where is the Indian Baidu or Indian Alibaba? It's not listed on, on in the U.S. yet. And so it, it's harder for the average U.S. investor to get excited about India when there just aren't really any avenues for them to invest in. And that, of course, leads to institutions, too. However, I think on the, the plus side is that this will only grow because the base is relatively low when you compare it to China. And I would argue even compared to Israel. I mean, if you look at Israel, even a country of six or seven million people like Israel has probably 50 companies uh, listed on NASDAQ, something like that. And so clearly there's a big opportunity for India to, to catch up. And I think the other thing is, is just the people. I mean, there is just such a people to people link between India and Silicon Valley, whether it's you know, Americans of Indian origin uh, living in Silicon Valley, or just enough people in the U.S. now have experience of India just through the, even through outsourcing in, in the early, you know, in late 90s, early 2000s, when the whole outsourcing boom happened. I think if enough people now have been around India and been experienced with India and gotten interested in it to the point where you see, you know, people who aren't of Indian origin going to India and doing startups. And there, there are a number of, of successful examples of uh, people who just went to India and did a startup and, and really had no prior connection to India. And so that's what I think when, when you start seeing this ecosystem start having legs, it will just grow from here. It's just kind of, it's a virtuous cycle. Oh, that's awesome. I think one one company that has definitely, you know, created waves is, um, you know, Geo, you know, Reliance Geo. They've gotten investment from, you know, KKR, Facebook, Silver Lake, a lot of big investment dollars, you know, who are some of the other sort of big companies that are either homegrown or, you know, other billion dollar companies that have started uh, in India startups that kind of come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, India in some ways um, is following a path that you see in other countries, possibly China, possibly the US with some local variations, but and you can kind of break it down into e-commerce and, and e- within e-commerce, you know, food delivery, groceries, and then you, you know, and, and there's an Indian equivalent for each one of those, whether it's a Swiggy or a Zomato or a Big Basket, or you, you know, you, you, so your question is about, you know, what are some of the other big startups? These are now unicorns. And I think if you look at the number of unicorns in India, it's probably, uh, I'd have to look at the latest statistics, but I'm, I'm sure it exceeds 30 at this point and possibly 40, but that doesn't, that, that compares to something like the U.S., but it's over 200 probably, and, and certainly China probably 150 plus. So it's it's still you know much lower than the U.S. or China, but it's probably more than than any single country in Europe. Uh, probably not as much as Europe as a whole, but definitely bigger than a Germany or or a, or a U.K. or France. There's positive movement, and there are large unicorns coming up every six months in India. They're they're being formed. Got it. Got it. No thanks. What does the ecosystem look like? Because I'm sure you have to have a robust ecosystem to be able to support these startups. It's not just the entrepreneurs, but, you know, the lawyers, yeah. the bankers. And I mean, I think the ecosystem is, is definitely, it, uh, it doesn't evolve overnight. I think, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that kind of the first leg of this was late 99, 2000. So it's been about 20 years. So in that time frame, definitely the ecosystem has evolved. And, and with that, I mean, every, every part of the ecosystem. For, for that, you need, you need founders, you need universities, which graduate these. I mean, if you look at the Silicon Valley example, why is it so successful? And of course, now that's spreading to other parts of the U.S. and other parts of the world. But these basic ingredients of, of, of successful founders, investors, all the other support system, ecosystem, like the lawyers, the, the bankers, 
the, the accounting firms, everything else uh, around that to basically enable this ecosystem to happen. And I think that's now happening in India, not just in India as a whole, but within you know five, six cities in India, you know the, the Bangalore, Pune, Mumbai, etc. Uh, there's now that ecosystem. And I think the other thing that, that really propelled uh, Silicon Valley, even today, is that you have exits of these large companies, whether it's Airbnb, et cetera, where you then spawn people you know, who have had exits and now have capital who will then invest into other startups. And that is a very important trigger for the ecosystem to continue. And that's starting to happen in India, too, where you, you read about people who came out of a Flipkart or any other you know, large company which had an exit. And then they go on to do other startups. And that, that virtuous cycle is, is what's happening now in India. So, you know, let's say as you start thinking about this and you have an idea as a founder in India, how do you, you know, what are, what are the next steps? How do you think about fundraising? Are there incubators and accelerators? Um, how is the ecosystem maybe similar and, and different to, to what is in the U.S.? It's really uh, evolved very quickly in India to the point in India today I would say it's as good as probably a, a, a close to a UK level of, of infrastructure in terms of, of accelerators and incubators. I mean, you have all the, the major global players uh, interested now in India. We know that some of the famous names that are out there now, they either are in India physically or they are uh, there and, and basically doing investments from the US. Uh, and there are at least five or six of these world famous incubators or accelerators who are very active on the ground in India. And so I think all that's available to an Indian founder, which wasn't available you know, even three or four years ago. And you have homegrown VCs, you have uh, also a very good angel network. You know, I've been involved with Mumbai Angels. Uh, in fact, I was the attorney who incorporated it uh, since 2006. And now, you know, in addition to Mumbai Angels, you have other, other angel groups uh, in, in almost every major city in India who are now doing deals. And so I think there's a very active angel uh, ecosystem, which didn't exist earlier either. Uh, it's not as difficult in India now to get funding as it was earlier. And you have, you know, a choice of local uh, angels or even some of these global uh, players who are, who are active in India as well. Got it. Um, so with that, I mean, awesome to hear the traction that, that's there in India. But, you know, why do you think founders are still coming out to, to the U.S.? And, you know, there's such a, you know, like YC, for example, there's every class. It feels like there's a steady you know, set of founders and companies that are coming in and moving out here for that period of time. Why not just yeah. stay in India? Part of it is, is it really depends on, on what the company that the founder is, has founded, is it trying to do? Is it a purely India-centric company or is it a global company trying to solve a global problem or a global market, right? And if you are trying to address the global market, you don't necessarily have to be based in India anymore. And in fact, I think a lot of Indian founders feel that, you know, we're, you know, we can compete with anybody and we don't need to just be sort of pigeonholed in, into India, unless that's our primary market. For example, if you are a, a, an Indian e-commerce company, then that's your primary market, unless you know you later on decide to go to Southeast Asia or somewhere else like that. But if you're a SaaS player or product company, and, and then you want to attack the global markets, then in the U.S. is a, you know probably the largest uh, and you know most competitive market. And so you know if you want to test it out here or come out here, that's probably the, the good option. I think. The other issue is valuations obviously tend to be higher in the U.S. too. And so that's another driver. I think there's still a valuation gap between really, frankly, the U.S. and anywhere else. I think even, you know, whether it's India or, or Europe, uh, maybe China uh, as well. Got it. Um, th that's helpful. I, I guess when you're talking about the valuation gap, you know, how, how should founders be thinking about equity distribution, um, you know, with their with their early team? Is it is it similar to 
what you might see in the U.S. or or how do you you know do you have recommendations for for founders thinking about that? Silicon Valley has kind of pioneered uh, a certain model, and if a founder is interested in in following that model and basically taking venture capital, and and understand when you when you take outside investor money, then there's kind of an expectation and a path that you follow that you, that you, you know, you raise subsequent rounds and there's an exit for your investor. So if you are going to follow that path, then I think it's, it's best to stick to kind of the, the, the tried and tested. I always tell founders, you know, don't think too creatively, you know, either with the legal documents or with kind of this model, because that's what VCs expect. If you, if the founder has given away too much of his company to an early investor, then it's a problem in the cap table because then it, the founders get diluted too much going down the road. And then it's a problem for later investors. And so these are strategic decisions. I think that, uh, happened very early on, and, and sometimes the founders don't understand the implications of these decisions. But I think it's very important to consider the model, and you know, in terms of the numbers and and kind of how the cap table should look. But there are models of, of how this should should typically look uh, in successful companies, and and you know, one should kind of follow those. Got it. So you know, let, let's say um, you know I'm a founder in in Chennai, and and I come to you, and I want to start a company. What are what are the next steps? Thinking about incorporations and, and registering and things of that sort. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the first things to do is, is obviously, you know, you have to have a company, right? Without a company, you can't do anything. You can't open a bank account. You can't hire any people. You can't get investor money. So you have to incorporate your company. You can kind of do a beta test kind of as a casual thing, but eventually to get serious, you need to have a company, right? So the first question is, you know, where is your company going to be? And I get asked this question all the time. And I think the, the answer is, uh, which people don't like to hear is it depends. Uh, is kind of the answer. And it does really depend on what you're trying to do. I, I think that if the company is, the purpose is to address large global markets, then, and, and maybe it's, it's, you know, people in India may not necessarily find this intuitive, but it may be better to incorporate the company outside of India, including in the US. And that's just because if you are addressing those markets and you want to attract global investors, a US investor in particular will prefer a US company. And, and I think also the exit becomes easier. Raising further rounds of capital becomes easier. I get you know called on you know what they call a flip transaction or restructuring, going from India to the U.S. you know regularly, and and these transactions are not easy to to do once the company's already been incorporated. So you have to kind of move the cap table over, and there's significant tax issues. It's very time consuming and and can be expensive. And so therefore, people should you know to the extent possible strategize and think what 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 are we trying to achieve here. What's the market we're going after? And where's our exit going to come from? Where are our investors going to come from? I think if you put all those in a decision tree, you'll come to an answer. If you're going to be a purely India-based company and you have no desire really to, or, or you know, plans to, to go outside of the Indian market or attract non-Indian investors, then, then it's possible that you could just set up in India. But if you, you know, have other, other plans, you could might think about, I mean, other options we see sometimes are Singapore, Mauritius, Cayman Islands. Those are some options. But overwhelmingly, I'd say you know the majority choice is the U.S. And I think the other interesting thing about uh, the U.S. versus India is it's not just U.S. versus India because even in the U.S., people say, well, what state should I incorporate in, right? In India, you know, I guess uh, 28, 29, something like that. Uh, I lost count of how many states there are in India. But the U.S. is different because each state is actually has a different law, and so you have choices of, of Delaware or, or, or Nevada or Texas or California or whatever. But generally, the VCs prefer Delaware. However, I would contrast this with India, where uh, you know people say, well, "What state?" You know, who aren't familiar with it say, "Does it matter? Where should I incorporate in India? Maharashtra or Punjab or Delhi?" And the answer is, it doesn't really matter too much because uh, you know, unlike the U.S., where each state has a particular law, 
the, you know, Delaware law or California law. There's no such thing as, as Maharashtra law in the same way that exists in, in the U.S. or Karnataka law. There isn't, you know, there, at least in the corporate law world, it doesn't really exist. There, uh, there is kind of a, a central government act, you know, the Companies Act, which is where how most of these things are, are, are settled in corporate law versus the U.S., you have a, a separate Delaware Corporation Code, or and each state has their kind of equivalent, and there are nuances between them. Unlike that in India, it's really the Companies Act, and then you have sort of a, a Ministry of Corporate Affairs, which is kind of you know governing all this. So where which state you incorporate in, it doesn't really matter as much in India if you've taken the decision to matter incorporate in India. Unlike the U.S., if you're coming to the U.S. and you incorporate in Florida, I don't know if any of you remember the movie The, the Social Contract, but one of the scenes in that movie was where the founders uh, had incorporated in Florida, and, and there was a scene where they, they they actually reincorporated the company in Delaware in order to, to accept their first investor money, and that's, that's typically what's going to happen. Nice. Quick question that came from our Clubhouse audience. The question is, if we were, like Krishna said, it, we're actually better off incorporating, even though we're all based in India, we're better off incorporating in Delaware or in the U.S. to be able to attract global investors. So we're, we're, we're better off, even though we're going to be staying in India, we want to incorporate in the U.S. Yeah, no, I, I get asked, asked this question a lot, uh, but there are clearly examples of successful companies which are, have been incorporated in Delaware, uh, and, and, the, and most people are still living in India. And so there are plenty of examples, including unicorns, which uh, have been incorporated in Delaware. So it, it is possible, and if you are trying to attract global investors and trying to... Uh, address global markets, then there is a perception issue also to being a U.S. company. That's just the way it is. I think if you're dealing with U.S. customers or U.S. investors, they, they do want the company to look and feel like a U.S. company, even if even if most people are, are living in India. But, and I would say this is, not, this is not all unique to India. I mean, if you look at Israeli companies, there are plenty of examples of Israeli companies which are, follow the exact same model. Pretty much everybody's living in Israel, but the company is a Delaware company. And you would you would find that the same was true for other jurisdictions. There's a company which IPO'd about a month ago called Ozone, which is a Russian e-commerce company, and they incorporated in Cyprus. And so there are many examples of, of sort of companies in, in other countries also, and they use the, the country which is kind of more specific to for tax reasons or whatever. But there's plenty of, of sort of examples of different jurisdictions that people are using as holding companies. And, and do those, you know, depending on, you know, if the founders are India based, are, are there nuances or complications that that creates, um, you know, for taxes and hiring purposes, you know, if you're incorporated in like, let's say Cyprus, but you're hiring your, your entire company and employees in, in India? Yeah, I mean, definitely you need to work with uh, attorneys and accountants who are familiar with uh, this entire structuring process. And specifically, there are issues around what they call round tripping, and, and, and I won't get into all the details, but how, you know, sitting in India, one can incorporate a company outside of India. It, it, is, it is legal to do so, but there are structured methods as to how this that actually takes place. And so you need to find a, a good attorney and a good, and, and a good accountant who are familiar with this process. But uh, the primary reason isn't really for tax. It, it's really for the purposes of, of really um, making your company look and feel like a global company, and it's to attract investors to attract talent only because you have uh, now uh, stock options in a U.S. company, which is also a good currency because, you know, today you're in India, but if you later on had employees elsewhere in other countries, now you have U.S. stock options to be able to issue. And I think that's of interest to, to employees elsewhere. And then eventually your exit. I mean, the fact remains that 
in the U.S. exit market probably is still the most robust exit market in the world, whether it's IPO or, or, uh, or M&A, is just a very large liquid market, which I think you know, still is, is less so, in, uh, definitely in India still. That was awesome. Can you talk about some common pitfalls that, uh, you know, that you see in India? So basically, when, you know, if you're starting a company, you, know, you have experience starting something in, in America, and then you go to India, uh, what are some common mistakes people make? The biggest one is that first one in the very beginning. I think a lot of people don't really think through uh, how and where they want to incorporate. I think a lot of people get pressurized into doing, uh, honestly, probably the, the default option is, is just incorporating in India. And I've been, you know, even working on, you know, Series C and above companies where the, at a, you know, now flipping to the U.S. structure. And it's very lengthy and expensive process. So think through that first in terms of, of where you want to attract investors and kind of plan it out ahead. It's like a chess game. You know, where are we going to attract uh, investors from uh, and where do we think our exit's going to be? And I think that's probably the most common, I guess, pitfall, I would say. You know, the others are, are really sort of more around human dynamics, right? And those are very hard to necessarily avoid. But founder dynamics, you, you see founder disputes, you know, fa- allocation of cap table, you know, vesting issues. I mean, these are all kind of common, you know, potential issues that happen, could happen uh, anywhere. But, you know, possibly it's exacerbated to some extent in India, it, only in the sense that some of the tax issues are probably less clear in India, whether it's tax around uh, stock options, which, you know, they're, they're probably the, the tax uh, treatment of stock options in India is not necessarily optimal. At one point, there was a tax on angel investments in India where, there, there, you know, there was actually the angels were actually being taxed on their investments. So there are some of these issues that that are not necessarily the founder's fault per se, but they're sort of overhanging issues that I think in the ecosystem that still aren't resolved yet. Uh, and those are some important issues to think about. And the other is, of course, the litigation system in India. It's not easy to, to, to do any litigation whatsoever in India. It, it takes a long time. It's not the same as, as having done it, you know, in, in the U.S. necessarily, uh, where, you know, here the system is, is generally, you know, fast and, and, and I guess at least uh, somewhat fair, you could argue. Got it. I, I guess, you know, and, and that lens, so when folks are starting up in India, I guess, is there a state that you recommend people first think about? Um, or is it basically the same anywhere you go? Yeah, so I think we, we talked a little bit about that earlier uh, a few minutes ago. But in general, you know, one of the, the things that is kind of interesting from either side, if you're an Indian coming to the U.S. or a, a U.S. person coming to India, is that the nature of corporate law in India is it is a it is generally a what they call central government or you know federal government jurisdiction. That's the body of law. Unlike the U.S., where the basic corporate law is actually state driven. And so it, it's very different, and that's why it's important to, to uh, determine what state to incorporate in the U.S. And generally, the default option is Delaware, unless there's some very specific reason why you would choose otherwhere. But majority of, of companies that are venture-backed are Delaware. Uh, unlike in India, where I, I don't think there's any specific preference that I have seen yet uh, to incorporate in one place or the other. The only, the only thing I would see that people might consider is stamp duty. There are some states that the stamp duty is actually higher than other states, and so I have seen that potentially uh, being an issue. I don't know that it would drive that much of a decision matrix uh, between people, but it is something you know possibly to consider. But ultimately, it is where you think you're going to find your talent pool, where you're going to be based, uh, where your customers are. And of course, and all that nowadays is is maybe even not as relevant in in a, in a remote world where you know where you're based isn't even as important anymore. You know whether all your employees are working from home. And their home can be anywhere. And so does it necessarily, you know, tied as it used to be where, okay, I have a hundred employees in a particular location in a particular city. It's less relevant now to some extent. 
Makes sense. I, I, you know, one category that's been super fascinating to us is just looking at kind of crypto and the blockchain space, um, especially now, just given the inflation that's happening yeah. in, in the ecosystem. I guess, I guess, how do you look at kind of blockchain evolve and fintech evolve in, in India right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the crypto space is certainly, uh, of course, it's, it's new and emerging and there's a lot of interest in this space. I would say that, you know, the regulatory regime for uh, crypto blockchain is yet to be evolved in India. I mean, there was a very important Supreme Court case that happened last year around crypto blockchain, where at one point the Reserve Bank of India had, was not allowing banks to, to, to deal with companies who, who were crypto blockchain companies. And ultimately, to India, to the credit of the Indian legal system, in some ways, the Supreme Court actually shot that down and, and said the RBI could not, could not block, block these companies from, from getting bank accounts or doing business with these banks. So that was a, a big boost to the ecosystem. But I still think there's a lot of gray areas um, in India around crypto blockchain. And so I think that is still, it, it, is, it is still the regulatory environment is not necessarily clear. On the plus side, of course, you know, India has you know, many things going for it in this crypto blockchain world as a very large young population. Uh, which are, you know, who are generally uh, amenable to using crypto blockchain because they are generally early adopters or interested in adopting uh, new technologies uh, quickly. And of course, there's a large and vibrant developer community in India. And so that's also helpful. But the, the, the question is, can there be a global company out of India in crypto blockchain? I still think that that might take some time just because the regulatory environment still just isn't necessarily there yet. In terms of fintech, I would say India is definitely a, a market leader in that, even compared to Latin American countries or other emerging markets, whether it is, you know, uh, mobile wallets or, you know, different types of lending environments. I mean, India, you know, was probably one of the early adopters. If you look back, even going back to the 90s or 2000s with micro lending, which really started out at least in South Asia, if not India, you know, Bangladesh with the Grameen Bank. And then eventually India, of course, started developing in its own micro lending. But that was an early form of fintech. And so now you see many other uh, types of fintech type companies in India, whether it is the different types of, of, of lending, you know, whether it's lending through AI, you know, different, or you're using your social media as a credit score. I mean, there, there are different ways of, of loaning money in some way. So fintech applications, I think India definitely is, is, is a very uh, a serious player now. And because of the scale of the population, I think there are going to be some very large fintech companies out of India. Whenever you look at fintech in India specifically, you know, it really is around how do you, what's the cost of acquisition, right? And if you look at the U.S. market, folks like Credit Karma, where they're trying to create communities and then through that community, then monetize that community through offers. And I guess when you look at India, are there analogies that are very similar? Like, are you, are, you know, the new, the new kind of middle class, the emerging middle class, are they trying to figure out how do they get, you know, how do they save money? How do they play the stock markets? I guess, what are some of the factors that people are thinking about to their A, um, you know, reduce that cost of acquiring a fintech customer versus, you know, building a community? No, I think, I think I mean, a lot of these are, are similar. Uh, I think, you know, credit card adoption, for example, is fairly low in India given the population. So I think there are definitely companies trying to, to, to work around that for, for example, and possibly using some U.S. models to, in some way, right? So there are, you know, if, if you follow the U.S. model, you know, there's a company called uh, Brex, which focuses on, you know, credit cards for startup companies. Right. And so there's an Indian equivalent of that credit cards for startup companies in, in India, or there is an, an Indian equivalent of, you know, not an American Express, but other types of companies that that focus on, on credit cards or credit for certain types of communities, whether it's possibly, you know, agriculture, like farmers, for example, or, or, or students. I mean, you can segregate the market into different uh, opportunities and different groups and then address the, the needs of, of students, for example. You know, what are their needs versus farmers? What are their needs? 
uh, and farmers may be more seasonal students also, you know, follow the, the school season. And so, or, you know, urban consumers who are interested in home loans or loans for, you know, vehicles, for example. And so there, there are many, many ways, uh, uh, innovative ways around financing. And I think all those are, are coming and including, you know, whether it's, it's uh, FinTech or insurance tech is another, another play around that India is, you know, heavily underinsured compared to other countries. People don't have the same level of insurance. And so it's, it's the same play, you know, uh, whether, you know, like an example in the U.S. of Lemonade, where even in the U.S., the, the insurance is a relatively clunky product for a consumer to buy. And so even in the U.S., we have, you know, um, companies now that are coming up with innovative models around insurance, for example, and even consumer insurance. And then we see pet insurance and, you know, car insurance, et cetera, life insurance. So there are all kinds of, of ways. It's a very large market and, and probably underserved uh, in India as well. Those are great points. And I think when sort of approaching, um, you know, investing in India itself, you have to kind of realize that there is a mental model shift when, when dealing with uh, with those kinds of companies. You can't just sort of cut and paste uh, a model that's worked well in the U.S. into India. Have you seen, you know, folks that have done a good job of, you know, seeing a trend in the Western world and then applying it to a mental model in India that, um, you know, works well for the community? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are definitely examples of that. Um, for example, you know, if, if you even take uh, example of, of grocery shopping in India, right? So, for example, you know, every, at, at any of us who've been to India, you know, there's a very unique thing in India called the Kirana shop, which is essentially the corner shop, you know, really, which has been around for, you know, many years. And so the interesting thing about the corner shop is that, you know, every neighborhood, you know, in India has a, a, a local shop on this uh, on the kind of corner, basically. They serve the neighborhood, and, and, and it's really quite remarkable because they've really kind of um, – these models, which we are talking about, is new, but they've actually had these models for a while. They gave their customers credit, and they, they offered delivery, and this has been going on for, for 50 years. But what they didn't have is, is the tech application on top of that, right? And so now that's what you're starting to see, very innovative models where there are companies which are servicing this Karana sort of shop uh, because they're very local, hyper-local, for example, and then they basically – now, you know, offer, you know, how do they track their credit? I mean, literally they were tracking credit using pen and paper. Uh, and so, you know, now they're, they're more sophisticated metrics around credit. How do they deliver? You know, you have a guy on a bike delivering. Uh, and so how do, you, how, do you, how do you optimize delivery? And so I think there are, are very, there, there are new, new ways of, uh, of, of delivery here. And so I think those are, those are some of the new things that are, that are uh, happening and, and ways that, I think India is a unique model that way. And I think the other is that last mile, that even Karana shops are kind of used, being used as a last mile, that kind of like a, a place where, you know, if you're not home in the middle of the day, can the delivery be done at the Karana shop and you go pick it up later? And you see that model in, in at places like Japan, for example. So, you know, uh, Japan it has 7-Elevens sort of in, in the same way. And they also, you know, use that as, as in some way. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe switching gears a little bit, you know, if I'm a venture capitalist looking for, you know, new deals um, or I want to invest in the India opportunity, where am I going to find these, um, you know, these potential startups? Like, are there, you know, you kind of touched a little bit on the Mumbai Angels. Um, what other organizations are there um, in India that help sort of foster the startup ecosystem? Yeah, so, you know, that moment is one. Indian Angel Network is another. There's another called Vets Venture. I mean, there, there are many, uh, as I mentioned, you know, uh, accelerators and incubators, including the large global players. And so they all exist. Um, I think, you know, now it's kind of disaggregated. I think in the old days, you know, you had to know somebody. I think now 
you can just easily outreach to people and, and people are always looking for intros and, and kind of as the world has become more remote, in a way it's actually easier to access people because I think people are just receptive. There's no way to meet people in, in person. You know, it, uh, it's been that way for almost a year now. So I think more of these uh, sort of forums, uh, it's fairly easy to meet people now. And so there, there's a thriving ecosystem. It does help to be on the ground in order to, to learn the local nuances, but but also in a way it doesn't necessarily matter as much as it used to because even if you're on the ground, you, you're not necessarily meeting the same people in physical. I think the only difference is that if you're on the ground, you might understand some of the local nuances. For example, if you're sitting in the U.S., you don't necessarily understand how important the Kirana is to an average family in India and what it means to them, right? It, you, you kind of have to have seen that evolve and, and then you kind of get it. And, and I think the other the other thing that, you know, you, you see in India is just, you know, just things like education and how important uh, education is to, for example, Indian families, right? And so that's why, you know, education sector is booming in India. So there's certain nuances uh, that, Kind of help if you can understand the culture entertainment right you know there's a obviously cricket is very uh important to a large very very widely followed sport so you know these are some nuances that okay if i'm going to do sports or esports you know if you do you know golf then it's clearly going to be a niche versus cricket it's going to be you know much more of a mass appeal versus basketball which in the u.s would have mass appeal in india of course you know arguably it's still going to be somewhat of a niche you kind of have to do your homework before yeah, it makes a lot of sense now, let's say I've gone ahead and found a startup that I'm really excited about. You know, I'm I'm a global investor. Do I just go ahead and write a check like I normally would do? Is there a concept of a, you know, a safe um, or a saft or, you know, convertible note in India? What am I sort of buying into? You know, if there's an exit, what should I be thinking about? Um, is it kind of straightforward like it is in the U.S. or... Um, or are there other things that we should be thinking about if we're investing into these startups? No, these are all good questions. Um, I think it also depends on, you know, if you're an investor, are you doing this as a kind of a one-off or is it going to be a regular theme or feature of your investments? And then in which case you want to, you may want to think about how do you structure this as far back as, you know, five or 10 years ago, most investments in India were structured through Mauritius uh, and then later Singapore. And that was because there were tax trees between Mauritius and Singapore and India and those tax trees are, are less effective now. I mean, you still see some investment through these, more, more, probably more as legacy vehicles, but they still exist. And so that's one is at least to consider whether these, these structures make sense. Netherlands probably also still has a pretty good tax treaty with India. And so it's something to think about if you are investing, do I use one of these jurisdictions uh, if I'm going to do it this regularly? And I think in terms of your specific question about the interest, you know, what documentation or, or um, instrument do I use? Then the answer is yes, there are. Now, uh, uh, safes in India, they, they uh, you know, kind of in some way try to mirror uh, a U.S. model or a convertible note in some way. But I think the, you know, there are some Indian law nuances. For example, if you're a foreign investor and you're investing in India in a convertible note, well, it can't really be uh, returned back to you. It actually has to be a fully convertible note because what happens otherwise is that it's considered a, a foreign, uh, an external borrowing basically by an Indian company where they're borrowing a foreign exchange and that's problematic under Indian law, and therefore it doesn't necessarily work in the same way that, well, if, if the company, how's the company going to pay me back if, I, if I'm a foreign investor? And so those are some, some, some nuances that, you know, people need to work with some, you know, advisors who, who are well-versed in this and understand that it's not exactly the same as the U.S. But of course, you know, one, one issue is if you are, you know, if the company, investing company is a structured as a U.S. company, then of course it's easy. It's you're just essentially investing, you know, from uh, a U.S. entity into another U.S. entity. 
at least the Holdco, and then that company then has an Indian subsidiary. But then at least the documentation is, is really you know, more, it kind of goes back to my earlier point. It's along the lines of what um, an investor, a U.S. investor is used to. So one of the things that's been kind of top of mind these days is just really around kind of data, right? It's like who owns data? Is it the government? Is it the people? Is it the platform? And you can just see what just happened with WhatsApp, where the government's basically, the Indian government's basically saying, hey, you know, if France has these stringent data privacy laws, why aren't we using those same ones? Um, love to get your perspective on how do you see all this evolve, right? Where you have one extreme, which is China, where companies are forced to kind of basically, you know, embed their data into the government versus, you know, the other side of that. So I guess, yeah, I'd love to understand kind of how do you think this all plays out given, you know, where, where, where we're moving to a world where consumers should be caring, um, you know, as laws get more strict, um, people are going to have to keep all their information with themselves. And, and you know, how, how is that going to impact places like India? No, I think this is, a, this is a very valid point. I think, you know, there are different models in the world. If you look at the China model, you know, it's what they call a, a walled garden. So there, there's, you know, a wall and within that garden, you know, there are many Chinese companies and they took the view that we don't want to let, you know, the big U.S. tech companies in here. We want to develop our own local uh, equivalents to some extent. And that's what's happened with, with the Baidu, Alibaba, et cetera. Uh, and India, you know, I think took a, a, earlier had taken a, a different approach saying that, look, we, we will allow most of these U.S. tech companies to be in India. And so therefore, you know, if you look at most of the, the large U.S. tech companies are very active in India and, and Amazon or Facebook, et cetera. They're big players in India um, to the extent that there may be not, there is probably, it's not really the local equivalent of some of these, like a Facebook, there really is an Indian equivalent. You could argue there's an Indian equivalent of Amazon, but some of these players there aren't. There's no Indian equivalent of Twitter, for example. And so they've taken a very different model, but I think what's happened, and, and it's a fair consideration is for the, you know, whether it's the government or consumers in India to, you know, where is our data being stored? You know, is it in the US? Is that, is that the right thing for India? Versus, you know, do we need to store all this data onshore in India, uh, in data centers in India? Now, clearly, the, the, there are fewer data centers in India generally than there would be in the U.S. But and so these are some very real questions. I don't think there's it's been resolved yet. I think, you know, on one hand, the, the, the relationship between India and the U.S. is generally it has been good. And, uh, and I think will continue to be good and maybe even improve more with, you know, with the new administration that, that's come on board. I, I don't see why it would necessarily deteriorate. And certainly the people, the people, you know, traffic will, will only go up. Uh, and certainly as the world gets back to a sort of normal, you know, post-pandemic world of travel, et cetera. But I think these are very real questions um, that happens. And, and of course, now you have large companies like Ageo, which are, you know, at some level trying to, to replicate uh, large U.S. tech companies, or at least maybe even the large Chinese companies. And that was kind of the first large company that could compete sort of on that scale with the large U.S. tech giants. But I, I think this, we'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, because even in the U.S., I think we have these examples. You know, for example, are you know American consumers have the same issue? Are, are there is their data being stored by these large tech companies? Are they whether even if they're U.S. companies, you know, is that something they're comfortable with? And if they're not U.S. companies, that may be another U.S. Uh, kind of cause for concern for consumers. So I think all around the world, um, you know, these, this issue is, is very live and, and still has to be played out. Awesome, thanks. Thanks so much. Really, really appreciate your. Okay, your thanks for speaking to you guys. Hey, it's Krishna. Thanks for listening to Halo Drop. If you got value from this episode, please share it with someone that you think would also enjoy it. For more information, visit our website at halodrop.fm. Mm-hmm.